You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, this is Jay Harwood to the special edition of the Amazing Mets Alumni Podcast. Uh, it's the Hall of Fame edition. And you know the old expression, which doesn't belong and why, this is one of those things. Uh, on July 31st, before the Reds game at City Field, uh, we're going to induct uh, John Matlack, Ron Darling, and Goddard Alfonso into the Hall of Fame. Fans should be in the seats by 645 to the ceremonies begin. So let me give you a quick rundown of our latest inductees. John Matlack, member of the 1973 National League Championship Mets, um, co-MVP of the 1975 All-Star Game, Rookie of the Year, 82 Mets wins, 65 complete games, uh, 26 shutouts, led the National League in, in um, strikeouts, 1974 and 1975. Ron Darling, 1986 World Championship Met, uh, fourth on the all-time list with uh, uh, 99 wins, a Gold Glove winner, All-Star, uh, put together six seasons with double-figure wins, including 1986 when he was 15 and six with a 2.8 ERA. Ed- Edgardo Alfonso, um, 292 career batting average, um, Gold Glove All-Star, uh, 52 home runs in 1999 and 2000, 81 doubles, member of the 2000 National League Championship Mets. Um, hey, I just forgot one record that Ron Darling held. Most numbers worn by a pitcher with the Mets, 17, 44, and 12. Not even close. Uh, uh, true, though. Hey, before I forget, uh, this, this ceremony was supposed to be a year ago. Uh, then COVID hit. What does it mean to you guys on the 31st that there'll be, there'll be fans here in the stands and hopefully have a full house? John, why don't you start off first? I think it's absolutely dynamite that we're hopefully on the backside of this terrible epidemic and you know it sort of put things on hold for a long time but hopefully we're coming out of it now it'd be really great to see everybody how about you Ronnie well um one I I think I was looking forward to going in with Edgardo and John of course um and now that we're going to do that I just um I don't know I just think it's great to um be in front of the fans uh hopefully we have a, a a sellout house that night and um, I don't know if John and Edgardo feel the same way, but, you know, when you are lucky enough to, to get into a Hall of Fame, you know, there's so many people that are responsible for you even having a shot. So to recognize some of those folks, I think, is what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. John, why don't you speak to that question? Who would you like to recognize um, on the 31st? Oh, man, they, any and all that, that played alongside and behind me during – you know, the course of my career, because without them, you can't do it. It's a team game, and it takes everybody, it takes a village, you know, it takes everybody to make it happen. How about you, Fonz? Uh, for the first question, uh, definitely is uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be inducted to uh, Met Hall of Fame with, uh, with uh, those two, two super guys. I think we're so, so uh, blessed to be part of it. Uh, and especially, you know, I've been waiting for, for this for like, what, 15 years, one more year now, it's not much different uh, than, than to say last year, you know, I'd be inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame, and, and, and I waited a whole year to, to get to this point with all this guy. I think it's going to be a great, great opportunity. And um, to me, I think 
Uh, I would like to thanks to um, everyone in New York. I mean, everyone, everyone who makes this possible because, um, um, you know, when you play baseball, you don't expect to, or you don't, uh, you don't, you don't say, okay, I'm gonna play good because I'm gonna go to the, to the Hall of Fame. No, it's not like that. So, um, I think there's a lot of people involved in this, and then I feel so happy to be part of it, uh, this uh, 20, uh, 21 Hall of Fame with this, uh, Ron and Joe. I think it's great. You guys got to the Mets in different ways. I mean, Fonzie was an unsigned free agent. John was a fourth-round draft pick. Ronnie was a number one pick of the Rangers. We got in a trade. And each had um, kind of different beginnings. Fonzie, why don't you speak to the fact when you came up, uh, you know, you wanted to play shortstop, and Ray Ardonius came up. Uh, you wanted to play third base, and Robin Matura appeared. And then he became part of probably the greatest infield in Mets history with Oliver, yourself, Ray, and Robin. Why don't you talk about the beginning, you know, how you had to move around a little bit with your positions? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, in 1991, I signed as a, as a free agent from Venezuela uh, uh, as a shortstop. And, and, I, and I was good. I was a good shortstop, Jay, believe me. I was really good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Funny, I play, we, I we believe you, Fonz. <laughs> <laughs> no, I play, I play my, my rookie year. I play a little bit uh, short and second base. Uh, and then final year, I play more short, short. I started playing uh, second base in double A when they signed Ray Ordonez. Remember, they signed the Ray Ordonez. Um, and then um, they, uh, they say that I, they know that I can play uh, a second base. And they moved me to, uh, to a second base. So Ray made my job so easy in, in, in second base uh, because he gave me so, so uh, comfortable there. And then when we come into the big leagues, uh, I remember my first year at Dallas Green told me that and then, then he's going to use me as a utility guy. And uh, I, I got to play second, short, and third. So I'd be around, you know, and the first time I played third base is when Bobby Ball got traded to, um, I believe, was to, um, to Baltimore. Baltimore. That was right. the only time that I played every day third baseman. So remember, I just signed the short stuff. And I got more, uh, I feel much better moving around second and short. But third base, I had to go to play winning ball uh, to play third base and in Venezuela. And, uh, you know, we got the chance to sign Robbie Ventura. Yeah. It's how, it, it's how the, everything starts. That's great. Great fun. John, let me ask you, you uh, your first game with the Mets in 1971, you thought you had a win in St. Louis and Cincinnati. And Tom Sieber comes in and blows a save for you. And... What was it like for you uh, coming into a rotation with Kuzman and, and Ryan at some point and Tom Sieber? Was it hard to find your own niche? In, in a word, yes. <laughs> it, it, was, it was like walking into a place and, and, and hoping that you were going to be able to measure up and trying to glean whatever you could information-wise from these guys that had been there and were doing it. Uh, in terms of what it was going to take and how can you improve yourself and not wanting to let anybody down. It was, it was uh, definitely an uphill battle. Yeah. Ron, you had the same situation. You, you came to the Mets in uh, 83 pitch a game and your first three batters had really, really easy guys to face. You know, Joe Morgan, Pete Rose, and Mike Schmidt. <laughs> it got better after that, right? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, it's funny. I know these guys will say the same thing. Uh, when you're young, it's good to be young and dumb. Because uh, if I had thought about the facing those three hitters, I probably would have never got out of the first inning. 
But, you know, you have the hubris, a hubris as a young athlete that you can take down anybody at any time. And, um, you know, when you're in the minor leagues, you hope that you're brought up to the major leagues when you are ready. And I felt like I was ready. And, and I know those guys are um, Hall of Famers and historical and iconic, um, but they were standing in my way of getting through the first inning. So that's kind of how I thought about it, even though they're uh, iconic players. Ronnie, you, you got with the Mets really with probably the best run in team history from 84 to 90, first or second place all the time. And you, we were there when Dwight came. And I always felt that you, like John and his thing, really got overlooked a little bit. I mean, you, ne- you really didn't never pitch an opening game. You pitched the, what did you say, the Ronnie Dangerfield game? Yeah, yeah. Game? You get no respect. With no respect game. But, I mean, was it hard not playing second fiddle, Doc, but, I mean, being there and, you know, trying to earn your own niche? No, I I didn't feel that. Um, I I know what John's saying as far as, uh, you know, they had an established kind of bunch of guys. So he had to find not only his niche on the mound, but probably had to find his niche in the clubhouse. I, I, I never had that issue. We all came up around the same time, which really helped. Um, Dwight was Dwight, you know, he was just so good. Um, there was no use being jealous of it, just to admire it. Um, as far as a niche or whatever, I don't know, sometimes, um, being overlooked is a good thing, Jay, you know, sometimes just, uh, um, being in the dark, no, <laughs> being overlooked sometimes is a good thing because you're not always, uh, you know, you can just do your job. And I always felt better when, if you just left me alone, and then every fourth or fifth day threw me out there that I could get the job done. So uh, being in the a spotlight, even though I spent my life in the spotlight, was not always my first choice. Yeah. Talk about some of the big games you guys were a part of. Uh, John, I'll start with you in, 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 in uh, the, the playoffs in Cincinnati in 73, a two-hit shutout the second game, and you pitched great in the World Series. You only really got one win. But what was it like for you pitching in the, in the postseason in the World Series for the Mets in 73? It's without a doubt the most enjoyable and fun time I had in baseball, I think. Uh, it was nerve-wracking for certain. And when I watched how Tom pitched, I charted that game in, in game one. A um, couple of home runs beat us two to one. And, and I'm looking at 14, 15 strikeouts and a really well-pitched ball game, thinking how in the world am I going to be able to beat this club if that job didn't do it? <laughs> and so you just take it an out at a time, a pitch at a time, and, and try and wade your way through the lineup. And that was the approach that I took, and it paid off. Fonte, uh August of 1999 in Houston, you go uh, six for six, uh, six runs scored, three home runs. We would agree with that day, uh, Fonte, you think? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. That was the, that was the game that I'm never gonna I, I'm never gonna forget that game. I still have a video from that game, you know. And every time I, I'm by myself, I put it in and I watch it because because uh, that was a special day for me. I think you know to get a one one uh, to get a base CD, You guys know, I mean, to get a base C in the game is tough. And and that day I get six uh, plus three three home runs, and and that was something then. They don't even know what happened that day. Into Bobby, Bobby, he told me, "Do you know what he's done today?" I say, "Bobby, I got. I know I went six for six, but he told me, you know, he told me, he told me that was that was uh, one of the best game I ever seen. I ever been coaching, and I think you you went to the record, or whatever. Uh, a few guys been doing it, and that day, believe me, everything was looked like huge. You know, I, I even even I let the guy 
get me into, into a two strike. And then, you know, I still hit the ball because it's, that was a great feeling. Fox, the game was in Houston. You weren't getting the signs, were you? What? You didn't get the signs, did you? Because the game was in the Eskimo. <laughs> <laughs> no? You heard that trash can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, let no, me no. go back to game uh, four of the World Series. You know, a, a Massachusetts native. We're down two to one. You go to Fenway Park in front of probably a lot of relatives and friends. Pitch seven shot and need to get back to even up the series. What was that day like for you? Well, first, I want to say, you know, Pavlov's dog. Well, Fonzie's dog. It barks every time it hears. He went. <laughs> but um, as far as game four, you're right, Jay. The, the, you know, I had never... Uh, I had been in Fenway Park a couple of times as a, um, as a young kid, as a fan, uh, but I had never stepped on uh, that field. And the one thing I remember about that game is that I had probably the worst warm-up I had ever had in, the, in, in organized baseball. And I, I remember I told Mel at one point, Mel Stottlemyre, pitching coach, I said, this ain't working, Mel. I'm loose. Let's just go back to the dugout and like, regroup and, and uh, t- make it simple. And uh, – and then went out, and, and luckily I, I, I didn't have as good a stuff as I had in game one when I lost one to nothing, um, but somehow got through the lineup, and, and Gary Carter, uh, the late, great Gary Carter, hit two home runs that day, so made it much easier. But, you know, to get it even at 2-2 after where we were at, uh, 0-2 after two games, um, it felt uh, really great. And the one thing I remember, you know, as you get older, you start to remember all these things, but – the sideline reporters for the national game uh, that night uh, where I got interviewed after the game were Peter Gammons, you know, it was kind of like the uh, commissioner of baseball and Marv Albert were the two sideline reporters. Wow. I remember uh, after, that. Yeah. Is that crazy? Yeah. I just want to remind the fans again, uh, July 31st, being the seats by 645 uh, in the ceremony. John, we'll see you guys play probably most successful managers in Mets history. John, you just got Gil Hodges. I mean, I know he passed away April 1st, 1972. How well did you get to know him in a short time you were with the Mets before then? Well enough to, to be absolutely scared to death of him on one hand and feel like he was uh, an uncle on the other hand. Um, if I were to see him in the hallway in a hotel, I would probably go the other way rather than go past him and say good morning. <laughs> But on the, on the same hand, if you had a problem or you had a question, you know, his door was open and he was going to shoot straight with you. Um, really a shame that I didn't get to spend more time with him. It was a tragic loss. Well, Joe, how, how much did that affect the club? Do you remember he died on a golf course? Do you remember much about that day at all? It happened during that nine-day strike in 72. I had already been sent out with the other players and they went to play golf, and I heard about it on the news like everybody else, uh, and it was a tragic loss and a tremendous shock, no doubt. Yeah. Fonzie, talk about you know, Bobby Valentine. What did he mean for your career, and how has he played play for Bobby V? I think Bobby was um, – uh, I always say that's the guy who um, – who you play against Bobby, you, you want to kill him, definitely, because it's just the way it is, you know. But when you play for Bobby, it's different because he's going to be right behind you 100%. And he always taking heat, you know. He always he always there for you. I remember uh, a few times he told me, hey, uh, I, you know, one of those one of those weeks, then you don't you don't produce the way you're supposed to. You don't feel good. Everything's, you know, going like a roller coaster. 
I remember one time I come out of uh, uh, the game, I come out of the, on the tunnel, uh, and, you know, come out of the Shea Stadium lockers, you had to go through Bobby's, Bobby's office, and he was there, he called me up, and he said, you sit over there and close the door, and I said, oh, my God, what I did. So he, he started talking to me about, about what kind of player it was and what kind of player I was showing right now. So that's some, that makes something click in my, in my head and change the whole, the whole thing uh, about that season. And, and maybe I needed, I needed that from, from somebody, Bobby was the right guy because he knows me. So I get to know him pretty well, and he was, uh, he was uh, really teaching me how to play the game. You know? Right. Tell me about Davey. Well, I, I got a great story to, to, to tap you into. Uh, Davey, not only a, a smart baseball guy, new talent, but also so confident, uber confident. So I had been not scuffling in AAA, but certainly not pitching up to my, um, you know, as good as I could pitch. And Davey was my manager in AAA. And I was thrown on the side and he said, you know, when, when I watched you pitch in college, you had more of a three-quarter action. How come you throw straight over the top now? And I said, well, you guys want me to throw straight over the top. He goes, well, that might have been other people. It's not me. Where do you feel most comfortable? So I started throwing a little more three-quarter. He's like, now that works. Don't change that. And if you, uh, if you can get, get this mechanics all straightened out, I'll bring you to the big leagues next year. And I said, well, Dave, you're not even a manager of the club. He goes, I will be. <laughs> you wow. know. Davey was just a confident dude, but he also knew how to coach. He knew talent. And once the game started in the white lines, he was, uh, he was magnificent. Ronnie, it's his press conference in 83. He opened up and said, thank you for hiring me, Frank. Why did it take you so long? That's, that's <laughs> where we began his press conference. <laughs> John, I want to talk about a couple of different games to you guys. John, uh, in 73, um, you know, you, you – what, what do you remember about the you've got to believe uh, Tom McGraw's remarks? That's been taken kind of different connotations through the years. In July that year, you guys were last place, and M. Donald Grant had the clubhouse meeting, and Tug yelled, "You got to believe!" And well, what would you? What do you remember about that moment? Well, it, it was a the end of a clubhouse meeting where he was pretty much telling us we hadn't done the job that we needed to do. And it was about time we <laughs> stepped up and took it to business. And I, I think Tug was enthused by the whole thing. And, and it, that's how it came out. He was a very vivacious guy. And that's his way of expressing what that meeting meant to him. Yeah. One particular game in 73, I know what happened today. You're playing the Braves and you get hit, you get, you're hit with a line drive in the head, a fractured skull. And you're only out about 10 days. How do you manage that? I'm not sure they would allow that to happen today. I'm not no, sure they should have allowed it to happen back then. But uh, I don't know. I, it's one of those freaky things. I lost sight of the ball when it was on its way to the plate. I overthrew a pitch. I, I see the bat swing. I hear the ball hit the bat, but I never saw it till it was right in front of me. It was too late to really do anything. You what, just missed one start? Just one start, got a, uh, three days in intensive care, fractured skull, um, sort of a brush burn kind of bruise over my left eye where it hit me. And then uh, Dr. Parks cleared me to play, and I joined the club on the road, and we came back home and ended up pitching six innings against, I think it was the Pirates. Uh, I thought my stats are correct. Down the stretch, you were 5-1 and one from August to September, and a big part of that push to win at the last day of the year in Chicago. 
I mean, the other great part of the year. Yeah. Ronnie, I want to ask you about two games, though. Uh, probably one, I know you had a great career at the Mets, but for me, it's probably your most famous game he ever pitched. 40 years ago, um, against Frank Viola, former uh, teammate to be, you're pitching for Yale, 12, 11 shattered innings, Frank St. John's, you lose one nothing to 12. The game was written up probably more than any of the games you pitched in your career. Would you agree? It has been. Um, uh, 11 no-hit innings, by the way, uh, Jay. Uh, what did I say? Shot. Excuse me. 11 no-hit innings. No. <laughs> um, just I don't know just a small detail. I don't know what it says about me that the most famous game about me is a game I lost, but uh, I guess that's how it goes. But um, I, I don't know. It, it, it was iconic because it was a collegiate game. It was also against Frank Viola, who was unbelievable. Um, and uh, it ended up being one of those games that people still talk about. And also Roger Angel, the great New York um, New Yorker writer, uh, wrote about it called The Web of the Game in The New Yorker. And anything he writes goes straight to gold. So I think that was a big part of it, too. Yeah. The other game I wanted to touch on was the game in Atlanta. Um, it's in 1985, 85, right? It was a game. Um, you come in and pitch in relief um, uh, in, in, 19, in, in, in the 19th inning. Rick Camp headed a home run against Tom Gorman. I think that was your only relief appearance up to then or until yeah. later on. Yeah. And um, – you know, it was a 19-inning game, started on July 4th, ended on July, uh, started on July 3rd, ended on July 4th. Um, numerous people got thrown out of the game. It rained uh, about four or five different times. I threw the last pitch to Rick Camp, who had hit the home run the inning prior, to strike him out. Um, and after I was done making that last pitch at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, they lit the fireworks uh, in Atlanta. And uh, people thought it was the War of the Worlds or something that uh, – that Atlanta was being uh, besieged. Uh, my, my memory of that game is because um, there were so many people in the clubhouse already, guys that had already played, guys that had pitched, guys that had been thrown out, that when I came in the Mets locker room, I'll never forget as long as I live, I never saw so many Budweiser cans and Chick-fil-A wrappers on the clubhouse. Uh, in my life, oh my God. it was just a pig pen in there with guys that had, that had a couple of too many beers and ate uh, too many chicken sandwiches. But it was, uh, you know, to come off the field of, of competing at four o'clock in the morning and you're like kind of excited because you won the game and it's an iconic game, all that. And to come in and to see the reality, as John and Fonzie know, of what a clubhouse can look like, it's not so glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> Real. Uh, Before I just want uh, to talk one one picture, Tom Seaver, which you guys are very familiar with. John, what what did, was it like being on the same staff in his prime with you with, with, in the seventies with Tom? What did you learn from him? Uh, a ton. I just I was so fortunate when they brought me to the big leagues to be put in the locker room directly between Tom and Jerry Kuzman. Uh, learned a ton from each of them. Um, they were both very forthcoming with information, knowledge uh, of how they got where they were and what they were doing and how they did it. Um, Tom more so on the, all the philosophical and, and mental part of the game. Kuzi more so on the – this is the pitch sequence I used against this guy since we were both mm -hmm. left-handed. It helped tremendously. Um, but one of the key things that Tommy told me that, that stuck with me for a long time was that if you don't – 
whether you felt like you earned it or not, if you don't claim the success you've had, you're doomed to give it back. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. How about you, Ronnie? At the end, you were just with him for a year. I mean, you're interacting with him now. So what were your memories of Tom? Uh, well, uh, two memories. Uh, one is that in that September, as a call-up, he invited me to his house uh, for dinner, which I thought was uh, something that no one ever did before. And I thought it was amazing. But he told me something also, like uh, John was saying, he had great philosophical thoughts on the art of pitching. And he told me something that stayed with me as long as I live. He said, if you're a major league pitcher, you're never a mile away. You're only an inch away. So when people come to change you or to have all these uh, uh, radical uh, mechanical changes to your motion, he said, just uh, deftly uh, push them aside because if you believe you're a major league pitcher, you're never that far away. Just a little little tweak here or there. And I use that for my entire career. Yeah, uh, great stuff. For hey, Fod, did you interact with Tom and Alone? He was an announcer later on? The what? Did you interact at all with Tom when he was an announcer at all? Um, I, a few times. A few times. I met, uh, yeah, um, a few times that he come down. And uh, I think, I mean, I was so shy to talk to, to, uh, to, the, to uh, Tom because he's, he's a huge, a huge, you know, huge guy. And, and then I, we were talking a little bit. He just mentioned a few things about he liked the way I play. And, and I told him, I told him, wow, that's, uh, thank God didn't, that I don't face you and back in your prime because I got no chance at all. <laughs> yeah. But um, hey. I think it was a great, 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 uh, great human guy. And, you know, and pe people don't, you know, we're coming up finally to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, you know, people always give Mike Piazza credit for the two-run homer to put the lead. But people don't remember that if you didn't walk in that inning, it wouldn't have been a two-run homer, right? That's a crime. Yeah. People don't remember that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, most of the time. But you know what? I tell the people I, I wanna I wanna hit the ball out, but you know, unfortunately, I get a. I mean, the good the good, the good thing was that I, I walk in front of Mike, and, and and that was that was the. This how we worked the whole season, you know. Uh, Timo Perez, myself, and Mike. Timo get on base. I try to I try to move over to a second base or uh, hit hit run person third. Just come on Mike. Boom. You know, we worked we worked all year like that, and and I think that that game was so special for. Uh, for for us as a player, uh, but most especially for the for the New York New York people, New York fans, New York uh, natives, because you know everything we went through that year, and you know they need to see, they need to see something different, you know, to to, to change the smile right. a little bit. Mm. Well, well, tell you this, guys, it's a pleasure for me to know all of you individuals, and congratulations again on your induction. Remember, it's July thirty first, six forty five, being the stands. And John, Ron, and Garth, thank you for your time. And we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Jay, right. right. you have to be in the thank stands? You. What time? What's that? What time do you have to be in the stands? 6.45. I'm going to be serving popcorn and hot dogs. <laughs> what do you know right, I'll text you the time for Monday, all right? John, thank you, Fonzie. <laughs> all right, thank you. Remember, 6.45. Thanks, Can I go Jay. to the pool? Good to see you yeah. all. Have a good day. All Thanks, right. everybody. Appreciate your see you guys. Thanks. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 